0: Gas exchange is what what happens in the lungs inside. Oxygen gets from the lungs to the blood. Carbon dioxide gets from the blood to the lungs and outside. And third, we use the term respiration by uh, meaning the utilization of oxygen by the tissues in the process of ATP production. That's what we call before cellular respiration. So under three different approaches, we can understand the term respiration. But we have to make a difference when we talk about respiratory system. We refer on, only to two things, the ventilation and the gas exchange. Then there's another aspect, and that's why the, other, the, the two bullets at the bottom that says external respiration and internal respiration, there's a different way of seeing, but under the point of view of the respiratory system. External respiration means ventilation plus exchange of gases in the lungs. So when we move our muscles, get the air inside, and there is exchange of oxygen, carbon dioxide. That's what we call external respiration. But internal respiration is when the oxygen from the blood reaches the tissues. Now, we have instruments, we have some techniques to measure and quantify external respiration, that's what we do when we count the number of respirations in a minute, when we measure the lung volumes, uh, but it's hard to measure and quantify internal respiration because that's the oxygen that is utilized by the cells, by the tissues. But it is good to make this difference because we're gonna talk about external respiration mostly when we talk about respiratory system. And also, Notice that ventilation refers only to the process of movement of air in and out. When we connect a patient to a respiratory machine, we said it's actually a ventilatory machine because the machine is going to uh, push air into the lungs. the, the, The subject, most of the time, is not able to breathe in terms of ventilation it's not able to get the air inside the lot for different reasons so that's what the machines provide that extra force but that's just ventilation under that concept we can easily ventilate a dead body you get a dead body and attach to the machine and the machine pushes air inside but it's just ventilation there is no exchange of gases so good to have these two Concept well-defined before. Now, the gas exchange happens in the lung tissue by diffusion, simple diffusion, meaning just by concentration gradient. The gases, oxygen and carbon dioxide, they are present in the blood. And the lungs, what happens is, well, the lungs, the lung tissue is composed by small, very small air sacs called alveoli. And around these air sacs, in the walls of these sacs, we have plenty of capillary blood vessels. So the blood is circulating all around the lung tissue and this is the figure that we see. with some numbers here in the picture. This is what happens in the lung, the alveolus space of air, and the blood comes circulating here with different concentrations. This blue is the blood that gets to the lungs, and you see that the pressure or concentration of carbon dioxide in the blood, venous blood, these veins, is 46. And inside the alveolus, the air sac is 40. So by difference of concentration, the carbon dioxide diffuses in this direction from the blood to the alveoli. And oxygen, the oxygen concentration in the blood is 40, but the concentration of oxygen in the alveoli is 100. So therefore, the oxygen will diffuse in this direction. So this is a very dynamic process. The blood is circulating all the time reaches this area with this concentration, but then it will leave, and that's what the change in color from blue to red, rich in oxygen. So at this point, when the blood is leaving the alveolus, it will be equalized to 100. So this blood now is red because it's it's rich in oxygen, 100 millimeters of mercury. So this is what happens in the cells, in the tissues, the blood uh, with oxygen at 100 reaches this point, the tissues have five. Therefore, the oxygen diffuses in this way, and the other way around, uh, the carbon dioxide diffuses in the other direction. And everything is simple diffusion, just by concentration um, of the gases, different concentration of these gases in both sides of the blood vessel. Now, going back a little bit to the anatomy, we must remember that the respiratory system has two main parts. One part that is called conducting zone, and the second part respiratory zone. Conducting zone are just the pipes, meaning trachea, bronchi, of different levels or degrees of branching. And the respiratory zone, which is basically whatever we find alveolar. That starts in the respiratory bronchioles, which have some alveolar sacs. And of course, the alveolar sacs, they contain just all this bunch of alveoli. So conducting zone and respiratory zone difference. Respiratory zone is the site where exchange of gases will happen. This is the place where oxygen, carbon dioxide will be exchanged. Not in the conducting zone. Conducting zone are just pipes. They so, bring the air inside. So that would be the just, yeah respiratory zone, the alveolar. alveolar sacs, and respiratory bronchioles also. Many air sacs, many alveolar, as we see here, an amazing number of them, and uh, if we add the surface that is provided for exchange of gases, it's an amazing large uh, surface area, and That's why the blood is oxygenated every time that it circulates the lungs. The level of oxygenation is enough to provide for all the cells and tissues of the body. And the walls of the alveoli are very thin. It's just three cell layer. It's a very thin layer that allows the simple diffusion. Now, talking about those components of the alveolar sacs, the alveolar walls, there are basically two types of layers, there are two types of cells. The type one cell and the type two. Type one are the cells compromised in uh, gas exchange, so they provide a membrane through which the oxygen and carbon dioxide diffuse. And the type two are cells that have a special function. They make this substance called pulmonary surfactant. In this picture, it's represented by type 2, are these yellow cells, and the type 1 are the flat cells, squamous, simple squamous epithelium it it is mentioned as one of the examples in anatomy when we study tissues one of the type of epithelium is simple squamous and we say example the alveolar sacs of the lung and that allows diffusion of the gases we see other cell here called macrophage the macrophage we studied in the blood that and in the immune system that our cells are cleaning they are defending us against uh, invasion of microorganisms, and there are macrophages, fixed macrophages here in the arveolus. Now you can understand that they are there to clean up all the things that we breathe, like dust particles, carbon particles, any thing that gets into the lungs, macrophages take care of that. And in the smoking, the macrophages have uh, extra, extra work to do to clean up all the carbon particles, especially in smoke, that enters into the alveoli. This is just a reminder of all the conducting zone, all the conducting zone, all the system of pipes that starts with the larynx, trachea, two bronchi, two primary bronchi, right and left, and from there, secondary bronchi, tertiary bronchi, and they will end in the respiratory zone with the respiratory bronchioles and alveolar sacs. So, conducting zone is just the pipes, we said. But it's not only a simple pipe. There are some other things important with the conducting zone because it's going to warm, humidify, filter, and clean the air before it reaches the uh, alveolar sacs. There are cells in the epithelium that have cilia, they produce mucus, and they help to clean up and trap all the things that we breathe. And besides, the larynx is the site of voice production because that's where the vocal folds, the vocal cords are located. But now let's go and see what happens with the mechanisms of respiration and ventilation first. Thoracic cavity. Thoracic cavity, remember, there are important organs here. Cavities, like the pleural cavity, pericardial cavity for the heart. Well, let's just describe the pleural uh, spaces or pleural cavity. The lungs are surrounded by membrane, and this membrane is called the pleura which has two layers, but it's part of only one membrane. Because when this membrane is lining the thoracic wall, the inside of the thoracic wall, thoracic cavity, it is called the parietal pleura. But then this membrane gets into the root of the lungs, the bronchi, and then it starts wrapping the organ, the land, the, the lungs, and that membrane The part of the pleura that is surrounding the lung is called the visceral pleura. So we say here the parietal pleura lines the thoracic wall and the visceral pleura cover the lung surface. There's no space actually in between, it's a virtual space, meaning that if we open up the thorax going in the middle of the inter. intercostal spaces here, we go through these muscles and we are not going to find the empty space. We're going to f- find the surface of the lung, but we are able to push it and create a space, and that space is the pleural space. That's the complete space is occupied by the lung when it expands and during the respiration. Is it called the same pleural cavity? The pleural cavity is a whole space. There's a whole space where the lungs are. And the pleural space is a space in between these two membranes, parietal and visceral pleura. And if we go to the floor of the thoracic cavity, we'll find this muscle called the diaphragm, which is the floor of the thoracic cavity, skeletal muscle. A picture to uh, figure this is in here. In blue, we see the parietal pleura covering the lining, the inside of the thoracic wall, or thoracic cavity, and the visceral pleura in red is wrapping, is covering the organ, the lung. And in between these two, there is a white space called the pleural cavity, contained in the pleural fluid, which is a very small amount of fluid there. There's not actually a lot of fluid. It's just to lubricate and allow easy movement of the lungs during expansion during the respiratory movements. So, so where would be the pleural space then? Yes. The pleural space is the white part, which can also be called pleural cavity because it's a space, that is a space. And the diaphragm is shown at the base or floor of the thoracic cavity. And it's not a flat, Membrane as you see here has a dome shape like this. But it's separating the abdominal cavity from the thoracic cavity, and it's the main respiratory muscle, skeletal muscle that will be the most important for the respiration. Now let's see physical aspects of ventilation and how we get the air inside uh, inside the lungs. Following the concepts of diffusion, remember when we talk about diffusion, we spoke about how the molecules of everything in the air is moving or in the water is moving, has a random Brownian motion. the air will move from an area of higher pressure to an area of lower pressure, meaning by pressure, meaning concentration of elements in the air. That's the reason of the wind. The air moves from an area of higher pressure to a lower pressure. Well, what's going to happen is a difference in pressures inside the air inside the thoracic cavity or in the lungs, and the air outside, which is the atmospheric pressure. And thanks to that pressure difference, the air will move in or out. Now there are other factors like, and called compliance, elasticity, surface tension, which are also physical properties. We're gonna describe some of them in the next slides. And those pressures Related with the respiration are well identified, and they are described here. First, the atmospheric pressure. That's the air pressure outside. (laughs) Then we have the intrapulmonary pressure, which is the intralveolar pressure. the pressure of the air inside the alveoli, inside the lungs. Intrapulmonary pressure. And the third pressure is called intrapleural pressure, which is a pressure located in between, in the space in between the visceral pleura and parietal pleura. We mentioned there's a little bit of fluid here, pleural fluid. It works as a lubricant. So let's see how these pressures work when we breathe. During expiration, during inspiration, what's gonna happen is that the pressure inside the lungs, the intrapulmonary pressure, will get lower than the atmospheric pressure. And if the pressure inside is lower, well, the air will move from outside to inside. How we do this? By action of the muscles. The respiratory muscles, well, we'll, what they'll do is to, expand the volume, increase the volume. And by doing that, the pressure in the lungs will decrease, will get lower than outside, and the air will come in. And during exhalation, this intrapulmonary pressure gets greater than the atmospheric pressure, and therefore the air will move from inside to outside. That's all ventilation. Then we're gonna see how this is made, what muscles work to to, to to make this difference. Now what happens with the intrapleural pressure? The intrapleural pressure is considered to be a negative negative pressure. It's like a vacuum pressure there. There's no air, it's just fluid, a little bit of fluid, and that fluid makes these two layers, the parietal and the visceral, be stuck to each other all the time. And that means that this intrapleural pressure will be lower at all times, lower than intrapulmonary and lower than atmospheric pressure. So. That will reflect, that will have as a consequence that the lungs will be against the thoracic wall all the time. All the time the lungs are not attached, but stuck to the parietal pleura by connection made by this fluid inside. And the intrapleural pressure is considered a negative pressure. Like, we can have a picture of, uh, and these models that we have sometimes to show at the respiration, that shows like a little bell and inside a couple of balloons, and we see a space in between the wall of the bell and the balloons. But well, that's not how the lungs are, actually. If you see the lungs, like in an uh, X-ray or by some imaging study, you will see the lungs, like, having the same size all the time as a thoracic cavity. You don't see the pleural space. During inspiration, you see the lungs occupying the whole space. During exhalation, you still see the lungs occupying occupying the the whole space. You see the thorax decrease in size a little bit, but the lungs are always attached to the wall of the thoracic uh, cavity or pleural cavity. And that's thanks to the intrapleural pressure. Otherwise, during exhalation, what will happen is that our lungs will collapse. We collapse like the balloons in the model that uh, uh, we, we see the walls going in this way and that doesn't happen the lungs remain always open and we study a concept of residual volume when we made this um, uh, experiment on the, um, spirometry this air in the lungs that will never leave and that's why the lungs remain all the time open and uh, during inhalation and exhalation but of course there's a change of pressures that allow the air to come in. That's a little bit like this diagram. During inhalation, we see the air coming in and the lungs expand. During exhalation, the lungs decrease in size. But this diagram is not real because they're exaggerating this space. This space is not like this. It's just to have a good figure of how these through cavity is, but actually this line is always against the wall, during inhalation and during exhalation, both times. Now we introduce the concept of volume here, because pressure and volume are related to each other, from, we know that from physics, and these curves are showing The moments of inspiration and expiration, also inhalation or exhalation, and what happens with the pressures. Well, interpulmonary pressure here. During inhalation, what happens is that the volume will increase, the space will increase. The space of the thoracic cavity increases. The pressure, interpulmonary pressure, decreases and the air comes in. The air comes in and that's how we have the volume increasing. So we have an inverse relationship. But then during the exhalation, the volume decreases and that makes the interpumulmonary pressure to increase. So air will come out from inside to outside. This other line is showing the intrafluoral pressure following the same behavior decreases as well and increases after during an exhalation, but always in the negative values. This negative value allows the lung to be always against the wall and never collapse more. Since that interpolar pressure is negative, sometimes what we see is some people have rib fractures or penetrating wounds, like a stabbing wound in the thorax, and uh, let's say the stabbing wound, and this knife gets through the wall and penetrates into the pleural space. What's gonna happen? That space has negative pressure. And outside, the atmospheric pressure is around seven, 700 millimeters of mercury. So immediately what's gonna happen, the air will come in through the wound, and we'll get into the pleural space, into the cavity, and making that space was not supposed to be seen will increase, will fill with air, and the lung will collapse. That's what we call pneumothorax, and that happens usually when there are accidents, penetrating wounds, rib fractures, trauma of different types and the lungs are collapsing. The person is not able to breathe. The the lung cannot expand. This plural space, which is not supposed to have air inside, now has full of air because the air is coming in. This inside is negative pressure. Some physics. Pressure and volume. This relationship comes from physics. I said, if the volume is increased, the pressure is decreased. The volume of the thorax increases, then the pressure of air inside will decrease. And that is shown here in this system. If I increase the volume by pulling this embolus up, then the pressure inside will decrease, meaning that there is... Uh, more space and less number of molecules, relative number of, of molecules here. But if I push these embolus down, decreasing the volume of this chamber, now the pressure will be higher. These molecules will have higher pressure. That's how respiration works. And this is summarized in this relationship, P1, V1 equals P2, V2. That means that if the volume increases the pressure has to decrease or if the volume decreases the pressure has to increase in order to keep the balance all the time. That explains ventilation of the lungs, it's a mechanical process, it's a physical process. Physical properties of the lungs include other things like compliance, elasticity, surface tension. What are those? compliance. This concept means that the lungs can expand when they are stretched. When we breathe in, our lungs are able to expand. They are compliant, we say. But if someone has a problem in the lung tissue, like imagine the lungs surrounded surrounded by a excessive fibrous tissue, like a crust around the lungs, the lungs will not be able to expand too much. There's a disease actually called pulmonary fibrosis where there's infiltration of connective tissue in between the alveoli. And the lungs cannot expand. And this People have problems to breathe because of that. So compliance is how well the lungs can expand when we breathe in. Elasticity, similar but not the same. Elasticity is the ability to recoil after being stretched. So one thing is compliance when we the lung is able to expand. And we say it's elastic when the lung is able to return to the initial state. <coughs> which can also be affected. Because that relies on the number of elastin fibers, which is a type of uh, a component of the connective tissue. People with emphysema may have this problem. They lose elasticity, they breathe in. But the lungs are not able to go back to the initial state, and they start having problems to breathe again. Another thing, elasticity, has to do with uh, thoracic cavity, I mean thoracic wall. As part of the aging process, our joints, costochondral joints, external joints, and costovertebral joints, they're not able to expand or contract too much. They lose elasticity, and that can decrease the volumes uh, as part of the aging process. And surface tension. What is surface tension? Surface tension is that property exerted by the presence of fluid inside the alveoli. And there's another relationship with physics here, because in physics there are some uh, laws that describe the behavior of very small sacs or little bubbles, how they behave. And this is related to the pressure inside the alveoli, or the alveolus. I'm sorry, surface tension, is another? Um, surface tension is one, another physical property of the alveoli. How this can be understood? This can be understood as how small the alveolus is, how small this uh, air sac is. If it's smaller, it has more tendency to collapse completely and disappear, be collapsed. the same thing happens with the bubbles, when we play with bubbles. These bubbles, uh, they have a limit in size. They cannot be too big because they will just burst and pop or well, they cannot be so small because they turn into just the soap, the, the fluid. So this fluid presence inside the alveoli will help to decrease the surface tension. So surface tension can be understood that that, as that property that alveolus has, that if it's too small, it will collapse. Now, imagine the alveolus is very, very small, and we are able to breathe. So, we don't have problems with that thanks to the fluid that is inside that decreases that surface tension. And that fluid is called the surfactant substance, which is made by the type 2 alveolar uh, cell. So this is the formula of physics. You don't have to remember these formulas, but the conclusion of this formula is stated here. Small alveoli will be at greater risk of collapse without surfactant substance. Thanks to the presence of this surfactant substance, the alveoli will not collapse. And that is the main thing about the surfactant substance, the importance of the type two alveolar cells. There are examples um, here at this point. (laughs) Premature babies, if there's a premature birth, these babies that are born at 23, 24 weeks of gestation, they have real problems to breathe. Why? Because the surfactant substance is made in the lungs starting at the week 26, 28. So therefore, if some baby is born and before that time, the lungs, they don't have that surfactant substance. So what's going to happen? The baby is born, breathe, first breath, the air comes in the alveoli, but then first exhalation and all the alveoli will decrease in size, get it smaller, get it smaller, get it smaller. There's no surfactant substance and it will collapse. Second breath, not possible. Alveoli, more alveoli are collapsed. Well, there will be some alveoli still, but then every time they breathe and exhale, more alveoli collapse, 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 and are not able to breathe. Instead, if a is born after 8, 20, uh, the week 28, 29, well, the surfactant substance is there. So they won't have problems to breathe. There'll be other problems related to that, but not like uh, if they are born before, because there's no surfactant substance yet. That surfactant substance is made by the type two alveolar cells. They contain phospholipids and they reduce the surface tension. The surface tension that is a physical property of the very small alveolar sacs, preventing collapse of the alveolar. And thanks to this is that we have a residual volume. That residual volume is, make, is, is keeping all these alveoli open. They won't collapse because of that, and the air will always be there to guarantee that all the alveoli are functional and uh, able to expand and contract without problem. These are two examples of problems called um, respiratory distress syndrome. As we said, production surfactant begins late in fetal life, so premature baby will have a problem here called RDS, respiratory distress syndrome. Fortunately, this has treatment. There is... Uh, there are some products, artificial surfactant substances, that are given to babies if they are born very early, and that helps a lot. Helps, and uh, now we have babies born at 24, 25 weeks, and of course they have trouble, but they are helped by these artificial surfactant substance. And similar problems may happen later in adults, and that's called ARDS, Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome, because because of the presence of infection, septic shock, the production of surfactant can be reduced. And it follows the same, the same problems, the same events. the lungs will start collapse, and uh, little by little they are not able to breathe. plus all the problems of infection and complications, it's, uh, it has a very high, uh, high rate of mortality. Mechanics of breathing. Now, how these volumes change? We change these volumes thanks to the muscle. We say the main respiratory muscle is the diaphragm, the most important. During expiration, it contracts. And if it contracts, it lowers, it goes lower, and expands the space of the thoracic cavity. And we said if we increase the volume of the thoracic cavity, the pressure decreases and the air comes in. And during expiration, it gets relaxed, it raises, and makes the thoracic cavity smaller, less volume, higher pressure, and the air comes out. But there are other respiratory muscles, like the sternal intercostals, which are important during expiration and the internal intercostal that are important during forced expiration or exhalation. Diaphragm, external and intercostal muscles, but there are more. Here we have it divided in muscles of inspiration and muscles of expiration. We mentioned the diaphragm as the main, external intercostals, part of the inspiration, internal intercostals as part of the expiration. The rest are called accessory muscles. They work secondarily, but sometimes they are important. Like abdominal muscles, external oblique, internal oblique, rectus abdominis, during forced exhalation or expiration. Remember when we did the experiment of uh, vital capacity with we when Well, you work your abdominal muscles there, forced exhalation. But they're not regularly used, only during forced exhalation. So and. The one uh, accessories. The accessories. Yeah, accessories. And. Uh, These other two are inspiratory accessory muscles, the sternocleidomastoid and the scalenes, which are neck muscles. If you see someone with asthma or pneumonia in uh, in an emergency room sometimes, you can see the sternocleidomastoid working. Every time they breathe in, you can see the contract. And why the sternocleidomastoid contracts? Because if you see the insertion, it comes from the mastoid process of the temporal bone to the sternum and clavicle. So it contracts, it tries to lift the thorax, trying to expand and get more volume. But not regularly, only in emergencies and uh, situations where they have problems to breathe. And this is like a summary of that. We see the diaphragm contracting, going downwards during inspiration. and The diaphragm relaxes, going upwards during Aspiration or, or exhalation. And the numbers here show the difference of pressure outside and inside and how the air will move in and out during the ventilation process. Okay, let's stop it here. What comes to this pulmonary function test? We did this um, in the lab. So we'll do that again, review a little bit on next Tuesday. Now let's go and describe what we're gonna do today in the lab, which is urinalysis. Urinalysis is a very important laboratory test. Very commonly requested. And what it's going to um, assess is things like kidney function. The urine is where all the things that the kidney filters are present. There, any things, all the things that the kidneys are excreting, will be eliminated in the urine. So it gives a very good idea of how the kidneys work, and also it gives us a good idea of what's going on in the blood in different parts of the urinary pathways. So. When we perform this exam, there are different types of collections that we can make. Uh, But there are three parts of this exam always, which are physical, chemical, and microscopic characteristics. These are some types of specimens that are collected, like the first morning urine is preferred. But it depends sometimes, depending on what we're looking for, we can ask a random sample, which means at any time, without any particular um, uh, requirement. So another collection called midstream, is the urine that is collected in the middle of the urine stream. Why? Because the first, the first stream usually contains cells from the urethra contains bacteria from the urinary skin area. And if we want to look for bacteria in case of an infection, we want to know if bacteria are coming from the kidneys or inside the bladder, and that is better detected with a midstream uh, collection. Clean catch means a special uh, technique taking care of cleansing, of the skin area, genital area, just to make sure that it won't get contaminated with bacteria from the skin. Maybe a clean catch midstream. So, very, very careful collection. Especially if we want to detect bacteria in cases of infection. But if we want to make a pregnancy test, let's say, it's a random sample. It doesn't matter. We're not looking for bacteria. We're looking for the presence of this hormone in the urine. It doesn't matter if it's first stream, middle stream, or um, or any time during the day. There are some things that we have to keep in mind if we collect that, and some of them are, it must be processed immediately. With the urine is collected, it must be processed immediately. Or sometimes maybe you refrigerate it, for the maximum of about eight hours, If we leave the urine at room temperature, there may be complications, like if there are bacteria, they will grow more. And we can see then later a lot of bacteria we may think of as an infection, it's not. The bacteria will start eating glucose. If there's a lot of glucose in the urine and we take too long to examine the urine, the glucose will be decreased because the bacteria are eating the the glucose. Or other cellular elements, casts, Or other things may decompose and we're not able to see something. So, the best is to examine as soon as it it is collected. Physical, chemical, and microscopic examination. The physical examination is basically observation of characteristics, like the color of the urine. And it's very hard to define every specific color of the urine. We usually say, well, this is a Sweet Generous standard. Uh, that goes from yellow, amber sometimes, pale yellow. If it's too pale, too clear, that may mean that this urine is too diluted. That means that usually a lot of fluid's been uh, taken or the kidneys are eliminated an excess of water. But still, it's just an observation. We cannot make any judgments in terms of diagnosis. Unless we see red or pink, well, that means blood present in the urine. That is clearly seen. Even the same patient sometimes describes that. They say, my urine is pink. This is probably blood in the urine. Or if it turns very dark, like yellow, brown, green, brown, which may mean some type of liver disease. So that's the first physical examination of the urine. and also includes transparency. Urine is supposed to be transparent. There are different degrees of turbidity. First it's called turbid, just turbid. And if it's even, it gets worse, it's cloudy. It may be associated with infection. In general, we can say, well, there are some things there, excessive number of things, like what? Bacteria, maybe crystals, which means uh, risk for kidney stones. The best thing to assess this, the best way to assess this transparency is get the urine in the tube, and if you're able to read through it, then that's transparent enough. If you have problems to read through it, then you can determine different degrees of turbidity, turbid, cloudy. But again, it's just observation. This is the first physical description. Specific gravity is physical characteristic also, but it needs some instruments to measure. Um, What it means is how concentrated the urine is, in terms of how many things are as solutes in the urine. Maybe glucose, maybe some type of salt or components This is an excessive amount, a number tells us about this, normal values go between 1.005, 1.030, and this measure now is usually measured with a dipstick, which we're going to do today. There's another instrument called refractometer, which requires a special machine or reader. We can do a very good diagnosis with a dipstick, the reagent strips that we have today. Then comes the chemical examination. How we do this? With some reagent strips, these are commercial products, that are called reagent strips, these sticks. We have some of them here. These are containers. Some of them. These are reagent strips that have many squares on them, different colors. Each square is gonna measure for some specific component of the urine. And it's inside this dark container because the light may uh, affect the color if we leave it open or we leave it outside. Um, What are the things that we can measure with these reagent strips that are listed here? We can measure the pH. We can determine if there are proteins, if there's glucose in the urine, if there are ketones, bilirubin, blood, urobilinogen, We can even measure the specific gravity. Leukocytes, bacteria. Well these are used very commonly and uh, they are disposable, use it and throw it away. And how we measure this, this is what we do. We get the urine in today's lab You have to get one sample of urine. You collect your urine. You go to the bathroom and make a random collection of urine. You choose a volunteer from your group. And um, (laughs) there are some cups here. That you have to use for collection of urine, you don't need to collect the whole car. You don't need to collect the whole car. Just half will be more than enough. As I said, it's a random sample. And what we're going to do, what you're going to do is get one agent strip and dip it in the urine, making sure all the squares are wet in the urine and then take it out, use some paper towels on your table, don't make a mess, (laughs) and some globe there. And uh, you read, how you read, as you see in the picture. Every container, every bottle has all these squares. So you have to compare it this way, and see here the green at the bottom with this green. There are different degrees of green here, and it changes you try to match which color matches the best, and according to that, you write in your report what you find here. It says, if this is green, dark green, it says 250. That's glucose. That means there's 250 milligrams of glucose in that sample of urine. So in the same way, with each square, you compare the colors, and depending on what you find, you write that in your report. And the report you have on the last page big uh, table so you can report that. And what you have to write there is what you find here after you match the color. More specific instructions are well detailed in the lab report and how you can do the step by step uh, while doing this. Well there are some things to comment about this chemical composition or chemical um, analysis. Like the pH is one of the things that we always look for. Uh, The presence of proteins, because if proteins are present, proteins are not supposed to be present in the urine. If proteins are present, that means some problem in the kidneys, perhaps. Kidneys are eliminating proteins. That's not supposed to happen. Maybe kidney disease of some type. Or presence of glucose. Glucose is not supposed to be present in the urine. If there's glucose in the urine, that means that the glucose in the blood is high. And that may mean diabetes. So that's another thing that we look for first. Now, don't trust too much in the the diagnosis that you will get today. You probably will find some protein, some glucose. If you know that you have some of these problems, then you probably will find it here. But other things, if say that you have liver disease, don't trust too much, okay? because um, some of them may be expired, and so it's given some wrong diagnosis. So take it only as educational purpose if you see some change, not a diagnostic value. And these are some uh, problems that are seen when these um, squares, some other squares are changed, like the ketone bodies, diabetes. Like bilirubin is one of the squares. Bilirubin is a pigment made by the liver so may be, may show a liver disease. Uh, blood. If there's blood, there are two things. Infection or bleeding from the kidneys. Kidney stones sometimes. Urobinogen is another product of the liver, so we may think in some type of liver disease. In your report, you have a table also with all these components and some examples of health problems where you find, you may find all these problems. Nitrites, which is present if there's some infection, urinary infection, is very accurate for infection. Leukocytes, specific gravity. Normally, this is the profile of a normal average urine. Negative for glucose, ketones, bilirubin, nitrites, glucosides, there is blood, proteins, negative or traces of proteins, that may be normal. And the pH from 5.5 to 8. That's what is average normal profile of uh, urinalysis, chemical analysis. And then comes the microscopic examination. The microscopic examination is to what you're going to do is, with your sample of urine, you're going to transfer some plastic tube. And you don't need more than 7 milliliters here. this is great. I more than 7 milliliters. So you transfer some urine here. And you put it in the centrifuge, which is over there, for five minutes. It's already set up. You just have to put your tubes in. Turn it on, make it spin for five minutes. And after five minutes, what you do is to or the urine here make a quick movement like this. And there will be some remaining here, even though it looks like you pouring everything, but some will stay here. You take a drop of that your a on a slide, put cover, and see it under the mic. There is a stain here, or say stain. If you use this, don't use too much. Use not a whole drop, just a little bit of of this stain, because it stains a lot. So be careful with that. Put a stain on the drug of urine, cover slip, and see under the microscope. What you're gonna see. In most of the cases, since this is a random u- uh, collection, you will see epithelial cells like this. Epithelial cells from where? From the urethra mostly from the urethra and uh, you may see you may see some bacteria that looks like this rods, like bright rods, sometimes moving. It doesn't mean that you have infection. It's a random sample. They're probably contaminants, which is perfectly normal. You won't see yeast or fungi like this unless someone has a fungal infection of the, of the urinary tract, which first is not common. So, if I make sure, the last time I did this, we found the sperm. Yeah, it is possible. No, the yeah. It is possible as a contaminant of the urine. Yes. Yeah. And you may find red blood cells or white blood cells, again, which is not common. If there are red blood cells, that means that there's blood in the urine, which is not normal. White blood cells, some type of infection. But again, it's not common to see. The most that you will see are epithelial cells. Some fibers, mucoid fibers we call them. Crystals like this, occasionally. The most common type is this one, calcium oxalate. It looks like a little diamond thing, or pyramids. Or you may see this sodium urate, like like spikes or needles. Those are the most common types of crystals that you can see. And the other type of crystals are actually not common. They're seen occasionally, and related with specific. Yeah, so that's the last one. So, this is what you have to do today go choose a volunteer who collects urine and work with that sample. Do the urine analysis, chemical analysis, and then the microscopic And All the things that I use for with urine, I just pour them here in the bucket with clear solution. Of you, a yeah. a, I'm a, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, i to